Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Atheology. I'm your host, Ben Watkins, and I am joined by my co-hosts, John Lo... Ah, how do I say this? Lopatolito? No. <laughs> my name's John Lopalato. I'm one of your co-hosts on the Real yes! Atheology podcast. Ah, one of these days, I will be able to pronounce your last name. Um, ben, I'm. Uh, you just tell him your name. I'm not even going to... I'm going to get it wrong, too. Ben Baver. Ben Baver, not Bavar, Baver. Right. So, <laughs> um, we've got uh, an awesome interview for today. We are joined by Dr. Graham Oppie, um, all the way from Australia. Um, uh, Graham, could you introduce yourself? Uh, I'm not sure what you want me to say. Hi, I'm Graham Oppie, <laughs> and indeed, I'm coming to, to you all the way from Australia. Um. And so you've written quite extensively in the philosophy of religion, and that's main, mostly the work that I'm familiar with. Um, have you written um, as well outside of the philosophy of religion? Um, oh, well, I can tell you a bit about my intellectual history. So my dissertation was in philosophy, my PhD in philosophy was in philosophy of language. And after I got out of graduate school, my first publications were in philosophy of language and aesthetics. They were the two areas that I published in for a few years. And then I kind of made this gradual transition. So I published some stuff in other areas. I wrote a couple of papers about minimalism and truth, and I wrote um, some stuff about the two envelope paradox and various things. But I ended up writing more and more about philosophy of religion and less and less about anything else until I've kind of reached a point now where pretty much everything I do is philosophy of religion. Oh, awesome. So it just kind of grew into, um, there was no like moment where you were like, hey, I'm just going to do philosophy of religion from now on. No. Uh, and I have done, until quite recently, I have done other things. So I had a big project on the history of philosophy in Australia and New Zealand, which led to a number of books that sort of finished only a couple of years ago and before that I had a project where we were looking at minimum message length inference so it was kind of very um, specific philosophy of science and eventually that led to a publication as well but in the last five years it's pretty much been all philosophy of religion so there's no there's no conscious decision about that I just doing what I felt like doing and that's what it turned out to be. Oh, that's awesome. Now, were you ever a theist who then transitioned into a non-theist, or did you uh, – uh, how did that story come about? Okay, so my parents um, were – and they're both dead now – my parents were Methodists, so I grew up Methodist uh, and went to Sunday school and church until I was about 12. I, at that point, I was not a believer, so I stopped going to church there was a kind of period of transition i don't remember it all that well where i sort of thought about things for a few months so there was a kind of transition between the period where i hadn't really um questioned the religious beliefs that i'd been taught as i was growing up and then there was a period after that when for a while i was a kind of fairly evangelical atheist and i loved arguing with people trying to persuade them that they were wrong. And then you made a career out of it. <laughs> Except that I wouldn't say that I'm particularly evangelical. I just, um, um, but yes. <laughs> um, so one of, one of the traditions, I guess you could say, on um, this podcast is we like to, every philosopher that we interview, we like to ask them the question, why philosophy of religion? Um, because we, we like to see know what different thinkers um like about it or what they think is important um and so we wanted to see how you tackle the question so so you when when you say why philosophy of religion you mean why should anyone be interested in it or why am i Correct. interested in it why uh, why I'm should, yeah why should anyone should be interested in it so religion's very important in human affairs and as if you can you look back as far as we can see back into the past, most people have had religion. It you, you look at um, burial sites going back thousands of years into our past, and although 
there are no written records and so it's kind of speculative. Uh, it does look as though the, that even many thousands of years ago, there was some sort of proto-religion. Jumping forwards a bit, um, religion was pretty much universal, I think, up until in the West, you've got to get to about the 18th century before 17th century, maybe, uh, and I guess with the dais, so seven, early 17th century, before you find any people who are seriously critical of religion. Maybe there were people who didn't participate, but my guess is that most people did. Even now, most people are religious. So um, there's this phenomenon. There's lots of interesting questions to be asked about it, including the kind of normative questions about the whether you ought to believe the beliefs that go along with religion. Of course, religions religions a lot are a lot more than just systems of belief. There's a whole lot of stuff, institutions, practices, scriptures, whole whole lot of stuff that people who study religion are interested in. But if you're interested in philosophy of religion, very likely one of the things that you'll be most interested in is the content of beliefs of the various religions and the question about whether or not they're true, whether or not you can be justified in believing them, whether or not you can be rational in accepting them and so on. So Graham, um, were you, so were you an atheist before you became a philosopher or was it part of your, you know, while you were in the process? Okay. So when did I become a philosopher? Um, so I, 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 the two things really did happen sort of more or less simultaneously. I think I became an atheist a couple of years before I started reading philosophy. But when I was at high school, I can remember reading quite a bit of philosophy. So I was, I'd been interested in philosophy since at least not long after I stopped being religious. Interesting. Um, I think one anecdote, if you don't mind, when I was, uh, I lost, I, be, I was a uh, evangelical Christian until I was about 28 and I was living in another country for a few months on a work assignment when I went through my period of doubting and I wasn't at home so I only had the internet and I would look up on uh, infidels.org it looked like it had a great number of papers to answer apologetics that I was reading and I kept noticing the articles that I would find on there that I said, hey, this really tackles it very well from the atheist perspective. It was written by this guy named Graham Oppie. <laughs> and it got to the point where I would, when I would look for the new argument, I would go to the website and sort by author and say, did, 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 did Graham write anything on this one? <laughs> so I just wanted to tell you, uh, uh, your work definitely influenced me when I went through my uh, transition. So, uh, thanks for that story. Um, there, I put a little, I put a bit of stuff onto the Infidels website in the '90s, and uh, Jeff contacted me and said, "Would I mind putting some stuff up?" I really haven't added much to that collection since probably about 2000 or 2001, I think. But yeah, it's good. It's good that some people found it through that source. I found I I had a similar experience um, finding a lot of your stuff and Theater Drange on Infidels. I felt like yep. his name popped up quite a bit. So were we starting John or Ben? Uh, Probably which John. One? John. Yeah, I just was it, yeah, but we're we want to talk about your uh, two most recently published books. I think which are uh, was it Atheism and Agnosticism. And also naturalism and religion. Yep. Um, so John was going to ask about, I think, atheism and agnosticism. Yes. So I, I really enjoy the book. I finished it a few days ago. Um, and I, I liked how you went through and you gave a nice definition of atheism and agnosticism and the differences and the types but what i found interesting was you sketched a case for atheism and agnosticism and in there you tackled in kind of almost a rapid fire way a number of arguments that um apologist apologetics will reference um and i was particularly interested when you 
tackled um, Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism. Basically, arguments that assume our reasoning capabilities are reliable in areas where it is obvious that they are not reliable. I think you reference um, areas like philosophy, religion, and politics. Yeah. Um, and the, I- the idea that we evolved to be adaptive in our reasoning and not truth-tracking, uh, it seems like it can be granted by the atheist. But the, the point you say is that when we make a more accurate assessment of the reliability of our reasoning capacities, we see that the assessment supports the claim that our reasoning capacities are, social, are, are a socially molded mix of evolutionary adaptations and expectations. And I was kind of hoping you could expand on that a bit more. Um, I, I was wondering if you're referencing how our reasoning capacities are molded to best work with areas where evolution needs to be truth-tracking in order to be adaptive, like, say, our reasoning about the input we get from our five senses. Okay, so that sounds about about right. Um, in the other book that we'll be talking about later, Naturalism and Religion, there's a, there's a whole um, half a chapter on the evolutionary argument against naturalism, on planting as... The, the version of it that planting it gives in um, where the conflict really lies. So the, at the time that I wrote Naturalism and Religion, that was his most recent version of it. And what you say is right. I think that we should, if, if you think about our evolutionary history, um, we're bound to be truth-tracking um, reasonably well um, for matters like working out whether there are predators in the immediate environment uh, and a whole lot of stuff that's related to sensation. Uh, there's reasons why you would just expect that we're going to track the truth there. Also, because we've developed a kind of general purpose intelligence, there are going to be sort of low-level areas um basic mathematics, logic, a few things like that, where we're also plausibly going to be truth trackers, assuming that there's truth in those areas. But you only have to look at the facts about disagreement in politics and religion and philosophy to see that it's we have overwhelming independent evidence that we're not good at tracking the truth in those areas. Um, and... There's no reason not to th- why we should be good, at least from a kind of evolutionary perspective. There's no reason why we should be good at tracking the truth in those areas, again, supposing that there's truth in those areas. So when Plantinger starts off his argument, so there are two versions of the argument. One of them is that um, the, pro- you know, the, the probability that we are reliable when we do metaphysics is high that I kind of have to, there's something self-defeating if I think that I'm not reliably tracking the truth in metaphysics and having metaphysical beliefs. That seems to me that can't be right. I mean, I look around and I see that philosophers disagree about everything in metaphysics. It's clear that people don't have the capacity to do metaphysics well, at least to, to track the truth in metaphysics. And, there's nothing special about me. I, I mean, it would be weird for me to think that somehow or other I've got these magic powers that make me the one who tracks metaphysical truth. Rather, you should go back and think about, okay, so, so what happens when you have metaphysical beliefs? Well, I'm guessing that you hold them in a slightly tentative way. And as I argue in the other book, if we're thinking, if, if we think about this in terms of credences, it can perfectly well turn out that you give sort of moderate credences to all of your metaphysical beliefs separately, like, you know, maybe 0.7 for the thousands of independent metaphysical beliefs that you've got. And then the probability that the conjunction of your metaphysical beliefs is true is pretty close to zero, right? So you're going to think, almost certainly I'm getting lots of stuff wrong in metaphysics. It's just for any particular belief, I hold it, but just not too strongly. So I was thinking that was sort of the rational attitude. But if if that's right, then planting his argument doesn't even get going, I think. Interesting. 
Right, so, because even if it's not reasonable to believe that uh, the vast majority of your beliefs are true, you can still ra- uh, rationally believe in any one of those, perhaps. Yeah, yeah well, you could, for each one of them, it's rational for you to go on believing it, so long as you're not too dogmatic about it. But you ought to have this other view that actually it's quite likely that most of your beliefs are false. Right, and that's quite consistent with holding the beliefs once you think about it from the point of view of credences. So whereas Plantinger thinks that it's self-defeating to suppose that most of your beliefs are false, uh, I just think that's not the case. It's not self-defeating at all. It's actually what rationality requires you to believe. <laughs> right. Right, so that's so that's my take. I don't know if anyone else has run this line against Plantinger's argument, but that's my line against it, the, the one that I've been running recently. No, I definitely appreciate it. It was when I first read the argument. My theory was, well, we'll be truth tracking in areas that we would have to be in order for survival to happen. So um, things like our, you know, our five senses, effectively. Yeah. And it seems like the argument, rather than arguing against being a naturalist, would make us want to be better empiricists. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so I think lots of people have said uh, it's not credible to suppose in the way that the way the planting is sometimes says it that there's just no connection. Uh, there's no reason to suppose that we're even going to be reliable in our what what we detect about our immediate environment, um, given evolutionary theory. But I think that's clearly false. We, as you just said, we do expect truth tracking for. A significant range of per- perception. Yeah, you can. And I, you, I, I'm just trying to think. Uh, Paul Griffiths and John Watkins, maybe there are some people who've who've e- emphasised that kind of point at length. But you, Plantinga might think of that as a detail. Okay, he went a little bit too far. Uh, maybe he can give some ground on that. It still looks. He, he still might think that the argument's going to work once we focus in on. Um, what you think about political beliefs or religious beliefs or metaphysical beliefs. I've, I've, my response to me, it's always just seemed to be that cognitive faculties that are generally reliable or truth tracking have survival advantage, right? So like cheetahs were selected for speed. Giraffes were selected for long necks humans were selected for their rationality, their ability to reasonably come to some truths. Um, Am I just completely off kilter here? So I think um, you would expect that for all creatures, there's going to be selection for their cognitive capacities to more or less accurately represent their immediate environment. So the the giraffe, um, the long neck um, may have... I mean, there's a there's a kind of evolutionary explanation of why it's got a long neck, but there wouldn't be giraffes if they were unable to detect predators in their environment. Sure. So, so, uh, th- so there's a general point about cognitive capacities. Now, there's a story to be told about how we ended up with the kind of general purpose intelligence that we've got, but there's nothing, and I think Planting is right about this. There's nothing in the evolutionary story that guarantees that our general purpose intelligence is going to lead us to be truth tracking everywhere. And there, it just seems to me that obviously when it comes to philosophy, for example, we just aren't truth tracking. Um, I have a story to say about what philosophy is that kind of makes that the central property of philosophy, uh, more or less. But the kind of the sort of important point here is that you only have to have a bit of familiarity with the kind of disputes that there are in philosophy, the the depth of the and breadth of the disagreements that there are, to realise that collectively we don't track the truth. We disagree about everything, pretty yeah. much, right? And so the idea that collectively we track the truth. That's not going to work because for any proposition, some of us believe it, some of us don't. I mean, it's, it's just a wash. Pick one of us separately and the idea that that one of us has some 
magical ability that allows them to track the truth is also just incredible. Right? So, so I just draw the conclusion that we're rubbish when it comes to tracking the truth in philosophy. No, I would I would agree. I think <laughs> I think the further you get away from uh, empirical things, uh, the much harder it is for us to grasp the, the what what the fact of the matter actually is for any given topic. Um, so that's why you say we should be tentative in the positions that we hold. There, there is another part of this story that, that I would like to kick in, which is this, that collectively we have discovered ways of getting much better at tracking the truth in some areas. That's what we call science. The, there are methods that we can adopt collectively that, and, that, and the upshot of which is that we get expert convergence of expert opinion about a whole lot of matters so there's a whole lot of settled physics there's a whole lot of settled chemistry there's a whole lot of settled biology and so on and um often that stuff contradicts untutored common sense so people who don't know any physics you can put them in lab environments and they will do things that um so um, example, this is, this is a nice experiment. Set up a fairly large laboratory with a little railway line in it and a carriage that rolls across the floor of the laboratory. And out somewhere out in the middle of the... So you imagine going from one end of the track to the other, somewhere in the middle of the track. There's a hoop on the ground and you're the participant sitting in the carriage and you've got a little brick. And what you have to do is drop it into the hoop as you go past. And what experimenters in the 70s found was that people who were relying on folk physics, people who hadn't actually studied physics, would wait until either they were level with the hoop or they'd gone past it before they let go of the brick. Mm -hmm. right. So there's some intuition that they had that was just mistaken. But physicists, people with physical training, people, you know, the product of the centuries of work in physics, people who'd actually mastered the physics were well aware that you would have to let go of the brick a little bit before you got to the hoop if you had to have any chance of it dropping in. Right. So that's a kind of example um, that's useful to bear in mind uh, if you're thinking about, you know, what what you can get to if you didn't have the institutions of science to help you out. What what your ability to track the truth would likely be much less. There's an old philosopher joke that uh, you put three philosophers in a room and they'll disagree about how many people are in the room. <laughs> yeah. And I think that goes along with what we're saying. Like, yeah, it's we are pretty bad at finding truths. We don't uh, that's we don't know as much as we think we know. That's part of Socrates's great wisdom. Right. So we certainly in philosophy, there's very there's very little where it's settled. And if you take, say, think of candidates to be experts in philosophy, the kind of most famous philosophers of the age, they disagree with one another just as much as regular people do about philosophical questions. That's, that's yeah. kind of the problem. The nature of the beast, so to speak. Yeah. So... Uh, one thing, if if we could switch gears a little bit, um, the the question I wanted to ask was in your book Atheism and Agnosticism, you when you got into making the atheists' case, you went a bit further. Um, you actually made the case for atheism by defending naturalism, which entails atheism, and I yep. found this. Uh, very interesting, because in, say, maybe the last year or two, um, I've become to think that um, I shouldn't be a naturalist, even though I'm an atheist, because I find it very hard to accurately define supernaturalism and, by extension, naturalism itself. Um, and I was wondering if you could perhaps give us an overview of how you define naturalism. Um, except maybe before you do that, would you tell us if you would consider yourself a naturalist? 
Okay, so these things are made clear in the other book, Naturalism and Religion. So, because in that book I do um, explain how I'm thinking about, how I think about naturalism, what I think it is. Uh, so, yes, I'm a naturalist, and I think that uh, when people characterise naturalism, they usually build way more into it than I think is required just for kind of base level being a naturalist, just as my definition of theism is very minimal, right? Theism is just that the, the central theistic claim is just that there's at least one God. So the central naturalistic claim is that um, there are none but natural causal objects with none but natural causal properties. So that's the first part. And the second part is that science is our touchstone for working out what the causal properties are. Right, so I take naturalism to be entirely a claim about the causal realm. And I think that, for example, considerations about normativity or value or um, necessary things, if there are necessary things like numbers, that's all just completely independent of naturalism. Other people who claim to be naturalists want everything to reduce down to the core natural stuff. So they want to explain the normative and the evaluative and the necessary if there are, you know, if there are abstract objects that exist of necessity in terms of uh, natural things. I've got no interest in that project. I just think that the kind of normative, I mean, this is maybe this is a kind of old-fashioned Humean view, but I just think that the normative and the evaluative are completely independent of the descriptive, and I think if the causal is just being part of what's descriptive. Well, now you got me excited. Hang on, hang on, it's my turn. So would you <laughs> say you're an ethical non-naturalist? Uh, so... There are lots of things that I don't have considered views about. So, but there are lots of things where if you push me, I'll tell you what I'm inclined to opt for. But I think that there's a whole, there's a realm of possibilities here. So when it comes to, to, to the ethical, what I would say is if there are ethical truths, then the fundamental ethical truths are necessary. That's my view. Right. Now, that was conditional. Maybe some kind of error theory about ethics is correct. But if you push me, I'm inclined to think not. What I'm inclined to think instead is what I just said. Um, so there's a bunch of fundamental ethical truths, but they're necessary. And I think that what's necessary holds no matter what. So you don't need truth makers for ethical things, ethical truths, not the, not the necessary ones. So, oh, that's very interesting. Because I have, I don't know if it's a radical view, but I've, I always say either G.E. Moore was right or J.L. Mackey was right. Either <laughs> it's, it's either non-naturalism or it's error theory. Right. Those so, right. But, but I think that it's either error theory or it's just a kind of, it's a very simple form of realism, right? There are truths, yeah. right? It's yep. just that they're necessary truths. And of course, you might think, well, now there's this kind of problem about the epistemology, but it's no worse than, and perhaps it's slightly less bad than the epistemological problem that you get for mathematics, where it seems that there are necessary truths and it's kind of tricky to explain how you know them. Uh, there's a guy who was at Monash for a while, Justin Clark Doan, has written some interesting stuff about why the problems are less severe in ethics than they are in mathematics, but we typically don't think that there's a particular problem with supposing that mathematical truth is necessary, and yet nonetheless, somehow, we have access to them. So I figure if we follow his lead, then there's no extra cost in supposing that the basic ethical truths are necessary as well. I have so many non-cognitivist friends right now that I know are just raging. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but that's fine. Remember, I did say I did say this was sort of a conditional thing, and I, yeah. you know, there's there, obviously there are huge disputes here, and I've not got any huge investment in um, 
moral or ethical realism turning out to be true. It just seems to me to be the best view. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. I have more questions related oh. to what he was just saying. Okay. Uh, so I, Sorry. I've been, I've been reading the book, uh, naturalism and religion and your definition of naturalism raised some questions for me. Yep. I'm wondering, would you say that it's coherent for there to be natural causal entities with some na- non-natural causal powers or not? Uh, no, but I wanted to... I, I don't... Coherence is a kind of tricky word. Well, I think... But, but maybe the answer is no. Maybe it's not coherent because what would it be for things to be natural? Presumably is just for them to have none but natural properties. Well, maybe that's not quite right because maybe they're... Now, there was that old idea about topic neutral properties like being self-identical for example maybe you don't want to think about that as being a natural property or maybe you do right there's maybe it's just a matter for semantic decision which way you go on that but um i think that um there's another part of my view is that not only um should we suppose that naturalism is true? We should suppose that it's necessarily true as well. And then the answer to your question will be, there's nowhere where there are non-natural properties instantiated, nor could there have been. Yes, but of course, that doesn't mean it's incoherent. No, it doesn't mean it. No, not at all. I and mean, of course, I, I don't think, for example, that um, theism is incoherent. Uh, I think it can't possibly be true, but that's those are just two different questions and i suppose maybe i mean you'd have to you'd have to be able to explain why it was that this thing counted as a natural object even though it had some non-natural properties but maybe you can do that okay another question is uh is it possible for a naturalist to be a non-physicalist like a dualist an idealist or even a theist on your definition so on my view no uh, I think, uh, th- but that's, that's the way that I've set up naturalism. It's opposed. So I've elsewhere, I've in, so there's a recent collection edited by Ty Goldschmidt on idealism. I have a chapter in that in which I argue against idealism on naturalistic grounds. Uh, obviously in the best argument against God, I argue against theism on naturalistic grounds. Um, and I, the argument of that book is sort of gets another run in both atheism and agnosticism and in naturalism and religion. So, um, so you think a naturalist can't reasonably be one of those things? Uh, well, let's go back to, I said what I, how I understand the term naturalism. All right. People use the term very differently. Lots of people do from the way that I do. And if you use the term differently, you may well think that naturalists can be all of these kinds of things. So uh, there's a lot of stuff that's been written recently about naturalistic religion. On the way that I think about naturalism, there can't be any such thing. But it's not that um, what those people are saying is incoherent necessarily. It's just that they have a rather different use for the term naturalism. Uh, it's very easy to end up talking past one another, even when we're just talking about atheism and agnosticism because of the variation in the way that the words are used. Right. Okay. Um, um, now, does, uh, I had a question. So does uh, your conception of naturalism imply something like the causal closure of the, the causal closure principle that, um, yeah, Okay, so if the causal closure principle is a principle about our universe, there was nothing in my account of naturalism which said that our universe is all there is because there could be a multiverse. Um, However, if we expand out and we think about the full extent of natural reality, whatever that turns out to be, whether it's our universe or whether it's a multiverse or whatever, then that, I think, is a causally closed system. Okay. So, yeah. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, the rest of my questions are about uh, Chapter 2, which is called What is Naturalism? Yep. Uh, 
So I'll start with section two, which is called natural and non-natural. You talk about the distinction between the natural and the non-natural there. Yeah. Um, and so in distinguishing between them, you address Hempel's famous dilemma, but as applied to the natural rather than the physical. And the dilemma is, yeah. are, are natural things the things that current science says there are, or the things that the best future or ideal science says there are? Yeah. And you say that natural things are the things that an ideal science would say exist. Um, that's right. But I also say the thing that um, I think I would, would, would have wanted to say to Hempel, that we can take current science as a very reliable guide to what future science is going to say. Right, and you say... In, in, in various respects. I and mean, obviously there's lots we don't know, but there's also lots that we do know about what the universe is like. Yeah, you admit that it's not a, a perfect guide to what... Uh, yeah. um, current science isn't a perfect guide to ideas. No. So, so, so there are some questions, uh, uh, for example, about the very small and the very large that we still don't know how to answer, particularly the very small and very high energy levels. Um, but whatever we learn about the very small is going to be consistent with what we already know about the medium size and the large size. And we know a lot about the universe that we live in on a whole lot of energy levels, just not um, some. <laughs> So any yeah. charge of this of this view of yours being scientific or appealing to scientism would just be misguided. That's you're not you're not putting forward anything like that. No, that's the the thinking that the normative and the evaluative and the necessary if you know maths is necessary and so on that those things are just independent of um the claim that's key to naturalism. I think mm -hmm. rules out um any charges of scientism i certainly so if you formulate as as some people do that naturalism sort of er, everything has to um reduce to the natural and that natural science tells you everything there is to know about everything that there is right that's nothing like the view that i've got yeah, yeah. i hate that i have to ask that question but i know someone's going to make the comment Oh, well, it was just him talking about scientism the whole time. Yeah, uh, it's not so much scientism as scientific realism and a thoroughgoing one. But, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is, you give one of the best answers to Hempel's dilemma that is available, but I have a problem with it in that I think there are good reasons to doubt scientific realism. And so I'm skeptical that current science even approximates an ideal science assuming an ideal science would be mostly true. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, one of the reasons that I doubt scientific realism is Boss von Frossen's selectionist critique of the no, mar no miracles argument for realism. Um, so the no miracles argument is the argument that our best scientific theories must approximate the truth since they are so successful. They make accurate empirical predictions, allow us to create powerful technology, etc., and so if you deny that science is true, its success is a miracle. But Boswin Frossen says that um, the success of our theories can be explained even if they're false. The explanation is simply the Darwinian point that we humans weed out scientific theories that don't succeed and preserve ones that do, regardless of their truth value. What do you think of that? So, hmm. in a way... This sounds a little bit similar to where we started when we were talking about um, Plantinger and the kind of evolutionary argument against naturalism. The, it, it seems to me uh, pretty implausible to suppose that um, lots of our biological science, pharmacological science, um, some medical sciences, anatomy, and so on, are merely empirically adequate and not true. That mm. seems like a kind of incredible position to take, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, I, 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 when you said that you 
had skepticism about scientific realism, I kind of went, what? what? <laughs> mm, well, I don't know. I, I mean, so I don't know how it's incredible given what I, the point that I made. But so, so, uh, so, so, where do we start? Um, that it's it's merely empirically adequate that there are tigers, but there might not be. Um, so, so, starting with kind of very basic um, biological science. So, I'll start talking about you know it's it's merely empirically adequate, but not um, true that tigers have s- circulatory systems or brains. Um, I mean, there's an there's Teeth. Right, you know, we so 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 where once you and I obviously in a way those are very marginal as scientific beliefs, but we can if you if you compare what Aristotle knew about biology with what we know now, and you think about the differences, and you count all the differences as science, and then you think, do I really just want to say that all of these things that Aristotle didn't know, all of these claims? are merely empirically adequate but not true, that seems like an incredible claim to make to me. I mean, so it is incredible about, like, the existence of hearts and these certain types of animals and stuff, but... Well, also about the observable... You know, what the brain do, for example. Aristotle had no idea about what the brain did, so... Yeah, yeah but it may be just i think there's more reason to be skeptical about uh, the unobservable parts of our theory. right uh, okay so mm. i'm good so we, we so we get to um, should we should we believe in atoms for example or let's let's say molecules yeah. um, yes. it's I mean, the tempting answer is we can see them these days right we can develop equipment that we can actually produce images of single molecules. Um, and it would be kind of weird, I think, to suppose that the best explanation for the images that we end up with isn't that they really are molecules. Right. It seems like maybe uh, so, the, the distinction between observation and detection is not very clear. It breaks down. But it also seems very time dependent. So, I mean, maybe I'm not remembering this exactly right, but at the time that Van Frassen wrote the scientific image, um, I think he was pushing a line that maybe we shouldn't be realists about molecules because nobody had ever seen one. Right? But in a, at least in an extended sense, we can now see them, okay. I think. So, one thing I I might want to say to that, so I I lean towards realism, but I am somewhat sympathetic to the point that Ben's making, where you could say, I I could grant that for something like molecules, right? We can get to that. But there are a number of things entailed by our theories that we... In principle, according to our theories, we cannot see. The electron... Multiverse. Yeah, not even the multiverse. I don't want to go there. I don't want to... But that yeah. that itself is controversial. So I want to say something in principle: an electron, a photon, um, those sorts of things, where we would well, effectively. So, so quarks a better example because in principle, right? We can't you can't extract a quark from a proton or a neutron, so you can't observe one independently. Yeah. Right? right. So that does seem like a better example. So let's not stray too much from the original question which is whether current science approximates an ideal science yeah so so the so across a very wide range um i mean it seems like if once we've got down to this point and we're arguing just about whether we should be realists about quarks um maybe i don't need to worry about that in order to just say well you've kind of conceded the claim i started with that that across a very wide range we we've got um, we've got reason to think that the future science is going to look very similar to the science that we've got now, um, just with more details filled in. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm kind of biased on this. So uh, my professional career is um, in nuclear engineering, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of um, reactor theory that goes into that. And so you know. 
when having to learn all this stuff, you learn all, you know, how these, you know, the nuclear theory, how different um, isotopes interact with other things and how different systems interact with each other. And that to me just see like those have to be true. Like something like the second law of thermodynamics or something like we have to be saying something true there. Um, and I just, I don't, I, to me, I just, I don't think I could get out of that far enough to really genuinely doubt it. Right. Um, okay. So, so I'm sympathetic to your view. Um, I'm not sure what I think about quarks yet. Uh, I guess I think the theory is probably well enough established that we should be realists about quarks. But if it turns out that it's not, well, that's fine. I mean, nobody said that we're right, that, you know, where we think we've got settled science, we're going to be right about that 100%. Well, we're mm -hmm. going to be right about a whole, a very great deal of it. Right. Um, I mean, think about classical mechanics. So people still do research in classical mechanics. They still discover new stuff. But there's a lot of stuff there that's just settled, I think. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Uh, so if we can change gears, uh, I also had questions about the next section, section three of chapter two, which is what might have been uh, in this section you try to motivate a naturalistic view according to which not only all of actual causal reality is natural, but all of possible causal reality is natural. And you do this by laying out three theses. Um, the first, which you call shared history, is that there is some initial segment of the past that is found in every possible way for causal reality to be. The second, actual naturalness, is that all of actual causal reality is natural. And the third, conservation of naturalness, is that causal reality is necessarily wholly natural at every time if it is wholly natural at some time. And you think, as do I, that all naturalists are clearly committed to actual naturalness. But in support of conservation of naturalness, you argue, uh, and I quote, plausibly, all naturalists are committed to conservation of naturalness. After all, if you think that it is possible for non-natural causal entities with non-natural causal powers to arise in a possible causal reality in which hitherto there have been none but natural causal entities with none but natural causal powers, then what grounds do you have for being confident that no non-natural causal entities with non-natural causal powers will arise in actual causal reality? I think yep. the same the same sort of reasoning you use here seems to lead to an epistemological argument for the PSR, and here's a sketch of one such argument from Alexander Proust's paper called Leibnizian Cosmological Arguments. Mm -hmm. If contingent facts could lack explanations, then your perceptual states could lack explanations, but contingent facts without explanations have no objective probabilities, because in order to have objective probabilities, they would need to be explained in terms of laws of nature or objective dispositions. So we can't say that a skeptical scenario where our perceptual states are unexplained is objectively improbable, but then we can't say it's objectively improbable that our perceptual states aren't causally connected to the real world in the way they need to be for our beliefs based on perceptual states to count as knowledge. Um, so, in other words, we have no grounds for being confident that our beliefs based on perspective perceptual states are warranted and this arguably shows that we lack any empirical knowledge if the P psr is false but of course we have empirical knowledge so the psr must be true <laughs> okay. okay so i'm not sure i'm persuaded by that argument but it is worth noting that you have something that looks an awful lot like psr on the necessary naturalism that i sketch out mm -hmm. um so I'm thinking, so you, you left out one of the other principles about chance divergence. So I say the only way that um, you get alternative sort of histories that diverge from the actual history is because chances play out differently. So there'll be a first point where there was chances played out one way, but they could have played out otherwise. And then you would oh, yeah. that. Right. And right. that's how you generate possibilities. Um, so... Sufficient 
reason, the way that I'm thinking about the principle, if it's going to accommodate chance, has to be something like um, all the non-initial things have causes. Right? So, right. so, so nothing. There, there's no event that happens that has no causes because there's the kind of prior history leading up to the event and you've got a chance distribution, right? And then what happens is a product of both that and then the chances playing out some way. But that would give you something that's that looks a bit like, I mean, it's it's not exactly the principle of sufficient reason, but it's something pretty close to it. Um, the only things that for which there isn't a sufficient reason now are the way the chances fall and perhaps the initial conditions and the laws. But on the view that I'm sketching, they both turn out to be necessary, the laws and the initial conditions. So um, you haven't, so in fact, it turns out there is a sufficient reason for them. They're necessary. That's what explains why they hold. Right. So I wanted to also talk about the chance divergence thesis yep. um, and, and shared his, history. Um, so you seem to think that uh, if you take together chance divergence and naturalism, then you get shared history or something like that. And uh, I just, I don't think you made that very explicit in the book, how that inference works. Um, like, if I suppose that it's only possible for causal histories to differ if the playing out of chances differs, and that causal reality is wholly natural, I don't see why all possible causal histories must share an initial segment. segment no, so I, I, I don't remember trying to argue for shared history from chance divergence. There's a, there's a bunch of principles. There were the first three I listed, and then there are two more that you need to, I think there are two more uh, that you need to add to get a kind of fully satisfying story. But I think of them all as independent parts. So the other thing is um, that actual causal reality is chancy. That was something else that was being assumed. That was the fifth principle to put in there. Perhaps I can wind back a little bit. I did say... Um, at the beginning of this section from memory that most people are going to think that natural, well, many people are going to think that naturalism is contingent rather than necessary. That is many naturalists will suppose that. And I'm going to sketch this view a, because I like it and B because it may not be very familiar to some people. I wouldn't um, necessarily say that, but be saying that, naturalists ought to accept this view but it's worth thinking about and then thinking about the consequences as you relax some of the conditions for example if you suppose that the that there are initial conditions and you suppose that they're contingent well then that's just going to be a kind of brute contingency in your theory that you might or might not welcome okay okay i thought you're trying to argue for shared history there but i guess it's just part of the view that you like yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm just trying to put put down all of the parts. Maybe it would have been better to have listed all the five characterizing claims of the view at the beginning, rather than mention three of them and then introduce a couple more yeah. as we went along. So, yeah. um, I do have uh, another concern about this section, though, which is that you seem to uh, jump from the idea that there are chances in the world to the conclusion that not all causal relations are deterministic. But in the recent philosophical literature, there have been a number of arguments in favor of the compatibility of determinism and chance, which is non-trivial objective probabilities, which are uh, objective probabilities between zero and one exclusive. Uh, right. So... I've, I haven't looked into that literature very carefully. I was assuming that um, the way that I was thinking about what chances are, that they're not compatible with determinism. So the kind of picture that I've got in my head is something like this. You imagine there's ev evolution of our system. Let's think of it as the universe to a certain point. And at that point, you've got a chance dis distribution. Right? So there are chances over a number of outcomes. 
and then you're going to get one of these outcomes rather than any of the others. And at that point, you don't have determinism. If you wind back the system and you run it again, you come back to the to this point, the chances can play out differently. You can get a different outcome. But determinism is just if you run the system, you always get the same result. So what may be going on is that people are thinking about chances differently from the way I am. And I think of that, that really the only reason that we've got to suppose that there's any such thing as possibilities, metaphysical possibilities, is because there are chances. But many people ha think that um, we should think about possibilities in a more epistemic way and that we should think about chances in a more epistemic way than the way that I'm thinking about them. So suppose, suppose I roll a dice and suppose that the world is classical, then there's a sense in which there's an objective probability that any of the, I assume it's a fair dice, there's an objective probability of one sixth for each of the outcomes. Um, but that's not a, the way that I'm thinking about it, that's not a chancy process. When you roll the dice, it's determined which way it's going to come up. The, the objective, the so-called objective chance is just a measure of our ignorance, given our ignorance about the precise initial conditions at the point where the, the dice is released. Um, the information that we've got gives us no reason to think that, to prefer the claim that any given side turns up over the claim that some other side gives up. So, so it comes up, right? So it's, you know, it, it comes up one, it comes up two, it comes up three, it comes up four. We've got no reason to prefer one of those claims over the others. Hmm. Um, so I'm, although I haven't looked at the literature, my guess is that, that in that literature, that dice roll thing is thought of as an objective probability, whereas for me it's not. It's merely a, a kind of epistemic thing. It's got nothing to do with ontology. Yeah. So, I, I think you could say that objective probability is... You could ha take a different interpretation of it, which is either actual frequentism, which seems highly implausible, or hypothetical, yeah. hypothetical frequentism, which says... Um, that the probability of something's happening is the frequency with which it happens. If it is, if there are infinitely many trials of the uh, process, yeah. right? Right. So on either of those things, when you when you roll a dice, there will be in in either of those senses, there will be a probability that attaches to the dice roll, and that's certainly consistent with the dice roll being deterministic. But that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about chance events. I'm thinking about chance events as being ones where you've got this um, chance distribution and there's nothing that determines which outcome you end up with. Right? The system just falls into one of the states. So the, right. in those cases, right. so, so so it's an ontological thing rather than a than a um, an epistemic thing. Pretending that there's a god, not even God's going to know which state the the system's <laughs> going to fall into. So in those in those case, in the kind of probability you're talking about there, um, that would be, I guess, akin to a brute fact. There's no explanation. Um, That's right. Just... There's no explanation of why it goes one way rather than another. That's hmm. exactly right. Okay. Those were all of my questions about naturalism and religion, um, but I do have some other questions. We wanted to talk about the modal ontological argument or ontological arguments in general a little. Um, yep. And I was wondering what you think. You, you are familiar with Nagasawa and Almeida's current work on the modal ontological argument, right? Uh, I haven't. <laughs> it's It's been on my facebook but i haven't read it yet so no okay. I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the details i do know i have seen um mike and eugene maybe it was mike saying that it was a rock solid argument but um i haven't looked at it yet okay and it's so new that you wouldn't have really addressed it in your work or at least not your book on the issue no the the books were all finished last year and this came to my attention i mean i don't know when it 
first surfaced, but it came to my attention only a couple of months ago, and I haven't, as I said, I haven't looked at it yet. Okay, well, so I think the gist is you've heard of uh, Nagasawa's perfect being theism, where he says um, a perfect being could just be like a maximally great being would just have each of the great making properties to the highest degree possible that uh, the whole set of great making properties can still be consistent. And, yep. Uh, right. So the argument, the modal ontological argument that I'm talking about is basically that there's very probably going to be some coherent set of great making properties, even if it's, even if you have to scale down some of the properties so they're not exemplified to their maximal degrees. Yeah. Um, there's going to be some consistent, compossible set. And so if that's if they are consistent, they're going to say that it's also possible for them all to be co-exemplified by some being, I think, is the argument. Right. So I actually, that argument I have discussed in print because I reviewed Eugen's book, and essentially that's the modal ontological argument that he defends in his book. Um, <laughs> but I thought that Mike and Eugen had a new twist on the argument. Anyway, what, what I, here's, here's what I might say in response to that argument. If you think about great-making properties um, and you think about the actual world, there'll be, and, and we suppose that we've got some coherent way of adding up the great-making properties, uh, it will turn out that there's, uh, assuming that we don't get a kind of infinite regress upwards, but let's ignore that possibility, sorry, that thought, th there'll be one or more things that tie for greatest, right? Um, and though that thing, let's suppose that it's, oh, I don't know, Donald Trump, um, <laughs> just to pick a completely implausible, right, um, <laughs> example, um, nothing's going to follow of any interest for theology from that right the the now okay so that was the actual world now what's possible well that if you go by the account that we've been talking about that i gave in other worlds there'll be similar kinds of things that are greatest maybe it won't be in other worlds it won't be trump but it'll be somebody else there's nothing in the kind of the the method of saying okay let's let's look for the what what um, well let's suppose that we're sticking to people what makes for the greatest person is going to give you anything that approaches a god right because that just depends upon what's what's there in the range of possible worlds that you're considering and if none of the possible worlds have got anything remotely approaching gods in them then you just won't get to the result that Nagasawa wants to get to. Right, yeah. right. so on my view, the, the view that I like, possibilities have got nothing to do with what's conceivable. And so the conceivability is just a complete red herring to get from kind of conceivability to possibility. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that. Do you guys have questions about the ontological argument you wanted to ask? Uh, no, I think that, that pretty much covers it. Ben, did you have any other stuff? You. No, I mean, I'm not going to ask more questions at this point, but I did have others. <laughs> oh, you did? <laughs> uh, well, go, go for it. I mean, it doesn't matter I, if it's... Yeah, you okay with that? Yeah, I mean, sure. so, I mean, I wanted to talk about something that's not really related to anything we've been talking to so far. Well, I mean, we've talked about the PSR, and... um so you replied to Galen Proust's new cosmological argument, which is an argument from contingency, by saying that their weak version of the PSR should be no less controversial than the strong PSR because the weak one entails the strong one. Yeah. In other words, the argument begs the question against atheists who doubt the PSR. Well, um, well given that they concede that the strong PSR is, you know, not an appropriate starting point for the argument. They concede that themselves. That, yeah. And right. I say, well, how can something that entails that be an appropriate starting point? Yeah, and they even concede that you're right, that it entails the strong PSR. Yeah, but and yet they, they think, still... 
Right. They think it doesn't show that their argument begs the question, right? If it does beg the question, it only does for yeah. people with certain epistemic abilities like you because you have an advanced understanding of logic. But for most people, the inference from the weak one to the strong one is not trivial or obvious enough to make it uh, a question-begging argument. <laughs> yeah, um, and that just – I do think that's kind of weird. And, and I'm not really interested in – talking about whether arguments are question-begging or not, because um, the notion of an argument being question-begging is a bit obscure and not very well understood. But given that they concede that it's not appropriate to start an argument from the strong principle, um, because that's just too close to something that only theists are going to accept, it strikes me that starting from the weak principle just isn't any better. Once you understand it, once you see that it entails the strong principle, you realise, given that you weren't inclined to accept the strong principle, that you shouldn't accept the weak principle either. That's how it seemed to me. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered if you would disagree with their understanding of what uh, question-begging amounts to. I know you've talked about that in your book on ontological arguments, what question-begging is. Yeah. Um, so that book's pretty old now. I'm not sure that I'm really happy with the discussion of what it is for an argument to be question-begging in that book. But I also have changed my mind about what makes for a good argument anyway, what the purposes of arguments are, what if you're assessing an argument for or against the existence of God, what questions you should be asking about it. And I've talked about this in some other recent things that I've written, but um, the way that I think about it, questions about whether something's question-begging, whether there's a burden of proof, those kinds of questions just don't arise. They're just not... You're not thinking about arguments in the right kind of way if you're worrying about whether the argument's question-begging or not. That's what I now think. Okay. All right. So I think we got a good episode here. Then. Uh, it's yes. been very enjoyable. If you appreciate the tone and content of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review for us on iTunes. All music was created by Work of Wolves.